What if cities were designed for both people and wildlife to thrive? What if we thought like coots or peregrines? If we could see the city through their eyes, would we do anything differently? You're about to embark on an audio journey along a section of the 200-year-old Regions Canal. This audio journey, conceived by us at their project, is an invitation to take on a bird's-eye view and imagine what the next 200 years could bring. London National Park City is a place, a vision and a movement to improve life in London by making it greener, healthier and wilder. In our eyes, it's also a perfect collaborative design brief and one we're keen for the design community to take on. We have invited Kabir Cole, a 15-year-old birder and conservationist, to guide us along Regions Canal, starting at Islington Tunnel and heading eastwards to the Kingston Basin Nature Reserve. Along the way, we'll also hear from designers, thinkers and activists, some interviewed on Zoom, exploring how design can help us become more ecocentric. I'm Kabir Kaul, I'm a young conservationist and wildlife writer. I'm really, really passionate about advocating for London's green and blue spaces and its wildlife and conservation within the capital too, because we have so many different green spaces and blue spaces in London. And I think people need to be aware of it, notice it and appreciate it. And that's what I hope to achieve with my work. I'm part of a few youth charities trying to engage people with nature, particularly birds and also bringing focus and awareness to London to make it greener and wilder. Generally, I'm trying to connect with other friends groups, those that manage different green spaces, because ultimately they are the ones which are preserving what I like to call the wild side of London, the patchwork of green and blue spaces across the capital. And really connecting with them helps to improve my local knowledge of the city and try to understand more about local ecosystems too. I first encountered National Park City on Twitter looking at all the projects and initiatives they were doing and I thought this is exactly what I, I would like to do. I, will, I want to make London a better place for Londoners and biodiversity alike and I think I'll learn a lot from being involved with National Park City, which I have. So I think since last year, since London was declared the world's first National Park City, the charity's done a lot to get people into that mindset of protecting the greenery around them for future generations. And through that mindset, people are connecting with London and seeing a different perspective to it and getting their neighbours involved, getting their communities involved. And that's what matters. That's what's needed, this huge community spirit, which is working, to, working together to make London greener and wilder. And London National Park City really has achieved that. 47% of London is green and blue space, which is a huge number when you come to terms with it. A lot that is worth protecting here. Reservoirs, lakes, rivers, streams, wet meadow, wet woodland, grassland, parkland, open space. I've seen lots of different habitats. It's really helped me to discover the sheer amount of biodiversity within the capital. I've seen lots of different species too. We're now going onto the Regent's Canal, probably one of my most favourite hotspots for wildlife. A lot thrives in the canal. In terms of birds, there are cormorants and grey herons, different types of duck and geese. They use it as a waterway, a gateway to the Thames. It's really a route for different animals to travel on. I'm very fascinated about the history of the canal. It opened in 1820. It was named after the Prince Regent, who later became George IV. The canal was primarily used in its original state to transport goods around here. So basins like City Road Basin would have been used for the distribution of goods like timber and bricks across central London and northeast London. And it's really where history and biodiversity come together. It's not all about us, might be the message. We might have built these things, though much of the work was done before we got here. We didn't forge marble from limestone or mulch silicates into workable clay or alchemize iron ore. But once they were there, once they were in the world, we were sharing them, like it or not. 
Birds are territorial with members of their own species, but where we're concerned, they don't tend to recognise ours and theirs. Instead, they work with can and can't. I can roost here. I can nest here. I can live here. So there are many different perspectives. I'll go through two. If you're a coot, which is a small bird with what's called a white shield above its beak, very common around here. Uh, its family would have been here for generations. It would have adapted over time to the ever-changing landscape. It would have seen the ever-changing landscape, the developments, the slow conversion of derelict buildings into other uses. It wouldn't be intimidated by the masses of people travelling along here, commuters, cyclists, joggers, etc. It's, it's quite a fearless bird. It wouldn't be scared of the barges travelling along the canal either. It would nest on the banks of the canal where the towpath would not be present, either finding food, for example, insect larvae, and they would also use it as a transport route. It would know the canal fairly well, or at least this stretch of the canal fairly well. Now onto the peregrine. The peregrine falcon is a marvellous bird. It's the fastest bird in the world living right here in London. They would actually benefit from the ever-changing landscape that the coot has seen living on the water itself. It would be perching, perhaps even nesting, on these new tower blocks you see around here now. And it would really benefit from the canal because unlike the coot, which would have to wait for different larvae, its food, to appear at different times of year, the canal is the peregrine's dinner plate. It has everything here that it can eat. It's at the top of the food chain. It can eat the grey wagtails that hop along the canal. It can eat pigeons. It's quite easy for a peregrine to survive around here. All the kingfisher wants is a stretch of water with fishing. Um, and so it doesn't, when it ventures into central Leeds or central London and perches by some canal that's on a, by an underpass or, or whatever else it is, very clearly in an urban industrial landscape, the kingfisher isn't thinking, oh, this is daring, <laughs> this is different. I'm being a bit, you know, rakish here, straying into the city. It's, it's just about the water and the fish. My name is Richard Smith. Um, I'm a writer, first and foremost, um, and a book critic. In just over 100 pages, uh, An Indifference of Birds seeks to be a comprehensive history of humans and birds on Earth. And what I think is different about it, or what I intend to be different about it, is that it's, it's from the bird's perspective. We have assumptions, a lot of assumptions that we don't question, to do with wildness is one, um, to do with beauty and dignity, to do with um, natural and unnatural, to do with property, to do with nationality, all these different kinds of things that we just take for granted and we work them into our, into our worldviews of, of wild things. And wild things don't have those. Uh, they have these different, as I say, a different set of values, different structure of thinking, for want of a better word, um, about the world. When you start thinking like that, it does get you out of the habit of thinking about, about nature as separate. It's, it's an elusive concept in itself because the things that we consider wilderness, are, are man-made is maybe too strong, but certainly man-affected, with the exception of you know, Greenland glaciers and, and Russian steppe or whatever. But anything, certainly in Britain, there's nothing that we haven't helped shape you know, with either with agriculture, with sheep, with mining and draining in, in wetlands. And so that dichotomy between the wild and the non-wild has always been a bit a bit false, you know. Yeah, I think any healthy view of nature has to incorporate that that reality that yeah, wilderness isn't over there. It's it's in here. So we started at the Islington Tunnel and we're walking along the towpath from Angel to Haggerston. It's quite a sunny day and we're nearing City Road Basin. I'm Bridget McKenzie. I'm a researcher and a creative curator in culture, learning and environment. Most people think of a museum as a building, but we are people first and foremost, stirring and collecting a response to the earth crisis, running activations under the brand um, and the principles of Climate Museum UK. Ecocentrism is about, for me, it's about addressing and expanding your frames of thinking. So ecocentrism, I think, is often thought wrongly as being 
a sort of sideways shift to look outdoors, to go into nature and to put nature rather than humans in the centre of your circle. But we are nature, nature is everything. So it's interpreted too much as neglecting the needs of humans in order to favour um, the needs of the planet. <laughs> as if humans and other species or humans and the planet are in two separate camps. I also like the term kin-centric, so that's about seeing plants and animals as our kin, our family, and having them inside our circle, our circle of concern. And that, of course, is an indigenous way of seeing. Ecocentricity is necessary because the planetary boundaries are breached because of the excessive consumption of fossil fuels, deforestation, just generally the attitude of wetico, the phrase wetico, which is a First Nations concept, which is the idea that we're essentially cannibals, we're eating ourselves, we're eating our world. So because of that, we just urgently need to shift to the right, the correct way of living, the way that allows life being ecocentric. So yeah, it's life honoring, yeah, it's not suicidal, not cannibalistic. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense, really. <laughs> A lot of algae in this section of the canal. <laughs> We're doing now what we did back then. We cause an uproar and the kestrels pounce. Back in the Pleistocene, we trampled the plants and scared up crickets. Now we lay down concrete and blitz the meadowland, but for a hungry kestrel, it amounts to much the same thing. Opportunity. They must see us, watch us, from the same calculating perspective as they did two million years ago. We're still galumphing heavy-footed through the edgelands, causing havoc, small life scattering wherever we tread. I would like to meet the non-human animals and, and the, you know, the environment, the ecology that we all are part of. I don't know, I would like to meet, meet, meet it on kind of equal terms. I'm Thomas Thwaites, I'm a, sometimes I say I'm a speculative designer, sometimes I say I'm a design researcher, and sometimes people call me goat man because I did this project where I tried to take a holiday from being a human being by turning myself into a goat. So my work as a speculative designer attempts to kind of burrow beneath the surface of how we experience the world in the everyday, I suppose. I guess there are degrees of how far you can get away from your own perspective. And so with my Goatman project, so I was trying to become a goat. And of course that involves taking on the perspective worldview of a goat. It was an attempt to do something impossible and so it's impossible to truly 100% take on the perspective of a goat or you know a bird or plant but I don't know but there's certainly value in trying to do that and at least kind of getting some way to that different perspective. So I went to the Alps, I made kind of prosthetic legs, I made a prosthetic stomach so I could eat, eat and digest grass, a prosthetic rumen that I had strapped to my body and you know, I was, you know, a quadruped again and trying to live with a herd of goats and it was just really um, tough <laughs> um, and uncomfortable and and that was constantly reminding me that I'm a I'm a human but despite that the physical change in perspective was very important because immediately when you don't have hands or arms and you're on four legs then your your nose and your mouth are the thing which is out in front of you and that's how you're you know moving around in the world and and that led to a very different experience of the environment Looking back at that, you know, obviously it was sort of a bit naive to think that I could become a goat. And subconsciously, you know, when I started the project, I was thinking that it should be, you know, not that difficult to kind of downgrade myself. And that was really like the outcome of the project after this kind of research process, kind of talking to and experimenting with kind of neuroscientists and anatomists and physiologists. Um, this like, okay. 
after you know nine months of that and then trying to live as a goat with a you know in a, as part of a herd it was like oh yeah goats are just as evolved as us this is probably one of my favorite aspects of the canal you can see remnants of them across the network these are old 19th century horse ramps a brick ramp which goes from the canal bed up onto the towpath. Horses were also used to transport goods across different parts of London using the towpath and often a horse would fall into the canal. Unfortunately animals weren't cared for very well so it was all about not protecting them and looking after them. It was more of just a matter of keeping them alive. So they didn't want the horses to drown because they were useful animals to carry goods. So these were installed to make sure that when a horse fell, it could walk back up onto the towpath. And that happened quite often. But these horse ramps aren't used at all anymore. So these are just decaying, really. But they are a nice symbol, an important symbol of the canal's heritage. When people know that I work for Design Council, quite often a question that comes up is, what is design? Um, I find that almost an impossible question to answer because, uh, in a sense, everything is design, sometimes people are not always aware of how it delves into every aspect of our lives. I'm Sabina Mohideen um, and I work as a program manager for uh, Design Council. I actually started my career working for the Landscape Institute, which is the chartered body for landscape architects. I moved from being sort of enveloped in the world of landscape <laughs> to a team that gives advice to ensure that our places are truly holistic. And part of this is also about future-proofing because that's really integral to long-term resilience of our neighborhoods and communities. I really see the interrelationships of so many diverse areas of skills and expertise that come together to create our places. Um, the architect's contribution may be obvious, but depending on the site, the design of that site could potentially also include the contributions of an arboriculturalist, if there are existing trees on site, a heritage consultant, an ecologist, a landscape architect, um, an urban designer, a planner, an engineer, an environmental sustainability expert. Um, there's even people who advise on sunlight, on daylight, noise, pollution, movement, people who advise on how to encourage community, how to encourage interaction, how to um, enhance people's health and well-being. Landscape is so powerful in terms of both environmental and social resilience. If you're thinking climate change, if you're thinking biodiversity loss, if you're thinking about fighting pollution, um, if you're thinking about sustainable drainage and flood alleviation, um, exercise and leisure activities, playgrounds, gardens, our coastal landscapes, our local and national parks, and of course, our canals and our riverbanks, landscape architecture has a role to play in all of it and I'm incredibly aware that the very fact that the profession is so little understood speaks volumes about the way in which we don't really understand that our open spaces don't just exist magically. You can see that the local school has created some brilliant gardens to engage children with the biodiversity around here. They're really contributing to the ecosystem here. I'm sure these lovely flowers will help pollinators around here. And then maybe one day this place could be good for foraging with this apple tree here. From a human point of view, birds have always been here. No human was ever born into a birdless world. Picture again that great murmuration of all the birds of Earth, milling in their many trillions across the shifting continents, across a hundred millennia. Our history, human history, is a late intrusion, a last-minute spanner in the birds' workings. We remain small in the scale of ornithological time, but from where we stand we can see that where we go, where we do our human things, the pattern buckles. Things change. And while, of course, things have always changed and always will change, these changes the warpings and vanishings in our human airspace, they're ours, they're not just drift, they're consequences. Where we act, the birds respond. We and the birds are knotted 
in an unfathomable symbiosis. These are some new developments over here. Maybe the peregrines will like them, this, these red and brown towers. You can see that coot over there is actually using rubbish. It looks like quite a sad sight, but you can see how resourceful these birds are, how well they have adapted for generations here onto the canal. It's all about adapting when it comes to the canal for birds. The biggest challenge is pollution, water pollution and air pollution from the surrounding buildings. The other challenge is adapting to the, the changing landscape. Some birds will be better at doing that than others. It's not just up to them to adapt, it's up to us to help them to survive around here. So it can pose quite a challenge when there's a lot of development around here for certain. My name is Gareth George and I'm a London Mooring Ranger for the Canal River Trust. The Canal River Trust is a charity. We manage about 2,000 miles of canal throughout the throughout the country, from Wales to uh, the Peak District, to the Lake District and stuff like that, all the way through Yorkshire, and uh, all the way through the heart of London. Ten years ago, the canals would be locked at night. That's not what we do now, you know, that doesn't happen. The canals are open, we want as many people to come as possible. But with that comes the conflicts between cyclists and dog walkers and, um, you know, people trying to take their kids to school at rush hour and, you know, people in Lycra trying to get places and people in wheelchairs trying to go out and spend a little bit of time, you know, by nature and the boaters as well and then the businesses that run next to the canal and on the canals. So there's a lot of, lot of different people that we uh, try and keep happy, um, which is not always easy. The canal is built on volunteer groups. That section between uh, the Islington Tunnel and sort of Hackley Way is quite a quite a clean bit of canal actually. I remember speaking to the guy who used to work for British Waterways. He'd been for the been with the canals for like 25, 30 years, and he was saying that basically the amount of staff we have to cover almost all of, all of London, they used to have just have on the regions, and all they did was go around and pull out rubbish because there was no boats, so it was just literally rubbish clearance continuously. Um, they'd go and do one stretch and then come back and do it again. So the canals are a lot cleaner than they used to be. So yeah, the, the thing, you know, the wildlife is back um, in, uh, on the canal, um, which is a good thing really. You can only, only do everything. Well, I first got introduced to the main community group on this stretch of the canal from Angel to Haggerston that manages it for wildlife through National Park City actually. They're called the Wildlife Gardens of Haggerston. They are a brilliant group. They are based at Kingsland Basin Nature Reserve, which will walk towards gradually. So what they do is preserve the canal's biodiversity by planting a, a wide variety of different species of plant. So that encourages many different birds, insects, sometimes even mammal species to come along here and live at the canal and they've really been successful. There is so much wildlife on this stretch of the canal, it's unbelievable. So my name's Esther, um, I'm part of Wildlife Gardens of Haggerston. Uh, we started the group uh, together with my husband Gideon um, and uh, it's kind of taken over our lives a bit so it's what we spend all our spare time doing really. We moved in here together in 2012 um, and there was kind of a vacuum. There was no grounds maintenance going on, there was no kind of, there was nothing really happening. Everything was planted in the wrong place. I guess on the CG images in the development it was all kind of, you know, green and, and nice and then, you know, the reality is kind of a sad plant planted in the wrong place. And then we got a tip off from a, a nice neighbour next door in the building who said we should look at the original plans of what was meant to be here because there were meant to be so many features because obviously he was here when it was all going through. So we spent five years writing letters to the council um, back and forth trying to get all the different aspects that were promised as part of the planning process here put in and eventually we did and then we kind of was doing our own stuff in the meantime trying to kind of 
increase biodiversity and make things greener and wilder and there's this really nice big patch of yellow flag iris on the main canal just opposite the basin and we've got a dinghy so we go out in that and get in collected the seeds and then our tiny balcony we were uh, germinating the seeds ourselves um, so growing on the starting to grow on aquatic plants which we'd never done before and they were in the fridge and then they were in the airing cupboard and we were trying to keep them cold and then trying to get them hot to, to, to start um, start the germination and then they kind of yeah they took over the balcony and then it all kind of then we we started planting them out and it all started to change you can either kind of i guess complain about it and then keep on expecting someone else to do it or you can just start doing it and no one seemed to stop us so we just carried on one of the major challenges is development and we're not anti-development but you can just build things in a much more sensitive way and take account of different features you know, there's this kind of hope that maybe people had realised that that's all we have once everything is kind of taken away and and um, it didn't make any difference, obviously, because there's such a pro-planning, pro-development, pro, kind of such a push for development um, that regardless, even if it's not building homes for the local community or if it, even if it's not building affordable homes, even if it's not dealing with any of the council's 13,000 people on their housing list, it's still it's still space for someone to live you can't shade out the whole canal and you can't light up the whole canal you can't canyonize the whole canal because you will lose everything and no one seems to understand it so it's um all we can do is make the most of of what of what of what we have and try and defend the space as much as we can and mitigate as much as we can but you can't really mitigate for complete loss of light and and so much artificial lighting um, and everything being closed up, but we, we're trying. Well, people have lives. People have influences and needs and requirements for, to be happy that don't necessarily tie in with ecological priorities. And they're, they always will, they always have. Even ecologists uh, have other things in their life than ecology. And that's bizarrely easy to lose sight of. And so I think you need complicated, diverse human perspectives. Our society has developed alongside wild things since its beginnings, um, and it's going to continue to. And yeah, we have to make decisions about how that functions, how we make it work. And we won't do that unless we're realistic about what people want, about, about what people need, about what wild things need, and about the compromises we have to make. The approach to design in the built environment emphasizes benefits to humans at the moment. Um, the whole structure is based around our profit, our well-being, our comfort, our fulfillment, our progress, and our pleasure. But we aren't this Earth's only inhabitants. We are one species, and we share this planet with millions innumerable numbers of other species of plants and insects. It is not our planet. And when we design in a way that establishes a hierarchy and a hierarchy with humans who have the most greed and the most voracious appetites right at the top, I think we're being really cruel and unjust. If you want to still look at it though from a human-centric angle, we're also being really superficial and short-termist in our thinking because we cannot survive without these millions of other species. Now, having said all of this, I'd like to make some very hasty qualifications. One is that this is clearly not every human on earth who thinks this way. Um, indigenous communities the world over have always had this approach to our planet where they have fought and continue to fight, sometimes sacrificing their lives to protect their lands, which they know to be sacred, and to protect its natural resources. And then there are the ecologists, the biologists, the environmentalists, and countless others who have also taken this approach of putting other species at the forefront of what we do from day one. We messed with this Earth's ecological balance and 
obviously it's come home to bite us because there is a relationship between COVID-19 and losing that ecological balance. And when we start listening and consequently respecting and raising the priority of protecting every other species that we share this earth with, because we recognize and appreciate that we don't deserve to dominate, but are here to coexist, then I think that would be an ecocentric approach. Oh wow, it's made a nest. Coots are very resourceful birds. They will use anything and everything to make their nests, including, unfortunately, the rubbish that you find here in the canal. But I've been told by the wildlife gardeners of Haggerston recently they've had the first coot nest that's entirely made of natural material. So that's a big achievement for them and a big achievement for this stretch of the canal too. Shows signs of a healthy canal. The Canal and River Trust have an adoption scheme. So we ended up adopting just the stretch between Kingsham Road Bridge and Whitmore Road Bridge. So it's just one bridge section. but. We wanted to start to think about well, what could we do in this space that could be um, that could be a pilot space for what could be done on the rest of the canal, and we thought well if we can show that it can be done, it doesn't impede any boat movement or you know it doesn't have an impact. It just it's just positive. It just increases wildlife. It just increases spaces for birds to nest and for um, you know aquatic invertebrates and and for the fish and so on and dragonflies and and damselflies then you know it's 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 a kind of win-win so then we realized that the, the canal was this underused kind of resource uh, for nature I guess in a way it has such potential it, it, it's so much more than just a navigable sewer which many people see it as and they're amazed when they do see fish and they do see dragonflies and they see such life so we realized that if we can get our small stretch looking as wonderful as, as, uh, as we could, then the other stakeholders would think, well, maybe we can repeat this all the way up to the River Lee. And then we've got this blue-green corridor connecting inner London and the Lee Valley for people and wildlife to travel along. And we wouldn't need to have a day trip or a weekend or, or going to the Cotswolds or not all of us have got the time or the the money or headspace to organise that, we could live with wildlife right here on our doorsteps. The floating islands kind of uh, do quite a lot of things, so they're, they're kind of a coir structure, kind of with a steel frame, but the clever thing about them is that you put them in, in quite deep water and then all the plants that you can see above the water, there's like that equivalent down below the water in roots. So they act as a kind of phytoremediation, uh, so all the bacteria on the roots um, draws up a lot of the pollutants and the excess nutrients in the water, which causes a lot of the algal blooms and the pond, the, the greening of the canal that you see, where it's, it's imbalanced and unhealthy. So you start getting that in, and also it creates amazing fish habitat as well, um, invertebrate habitat. So. Uh, and also you've got all the amazing stuff on the top, also good habitat. So you've, you've got these amazingly designed uh, floating islands that then just bring so much life and they're just you know, attached in and, and weighted down and they require very little kind of maintenance. So now you've got this natural edge and you can see all the sparrows using them and butterflies and bees and uh, even the more hens, you, know, you see the grass shaking and there's more hens in there and they've been nesting in one over over the way as well. Yeah, they enrich the ecosystem. So if you've got a healthy ecosystem, it, it's, it's generally very well designed. When we can, we, we, we let natural processes do the work for us. So we, we planted five two-litre pots of reeds and three rhizomes of bulrush. And those plants are so vigorous, they took off in this, in the, in the what we call the eco zone, the marshy bit of the, the area that we look after, and I thought I've given myself a lot of work to do, a huge amount of management. Thankfully, some contractors arrived. Two swans built their nests there, and they took out half of the reeds and half of the bulrush. We were worried they were they were going to take it all out, but it was amazing to see as lo as well as them being lovely to look at. Then you see them building their gorgeous nest. It was so perfect, so 
so circular. Anyway, but the main thing for us was they do the work for us. And that's what happens in, in nature. You read about the declines of nature everywhere else, but seeing this ecosystem is building, so we're not, apart from the, the, some of the species that have been lost because they just couldn't survive here, when you see all that building and you see new species and you see the new butterflies arriving and the new moths and the new dragonflies and uh, more fish than you've ever seen before, and it, is, it, it does give you some hope that actually with some sensitive management, people now understand that this is a space for nature, and they say, you hear people during lockdown say, oh, let's go to that nature space, and let's go to that bit where the swans are, and everyone's trooping in to go and, and just kind of stop and look and, and just listen to the birds and watch things. Yeah, I'll just take a few photos <laughs> around here. This habitat here. Yeah, it's good. What a lovely overgrown area. Some people may view this as messy or unsightly, but it's very good for wildlife. You can see just in the space here, there's quite a lot of plant diversity. So it can encourage all sorts of animals. You can hear grasshoppers chirping about already. And I can also see some small white and large white butterflies. Oh look, here's a large white. Two of them. You can find these places everywhere. They're the awkward shaped lots where no one can profitably build. The gaps between railway lines, the concrete footings of abandoned construction projects, the contaminated brownfield no one can afford to clean up. We can peer in at them through rusty railings, or over the tops of brick walls, because they're still property after all. They're not quite havens for birds, these places, these abandoned squares of city or suburb. They're not perfect, even by the birds' lights. They're dry, safe for shallow and short-lived puddles after rain, and they're often floored with concrete. The air here, no less than elsewhere in the city, is soupy with particulate pollution. But they are quiet, sheltered and thick with vegetation, give or take the biannual depredations of contractors with strimmers and plastic visors. They are good places for insect eaters to feed and nest and sing. They're places where we can't go and the birds can. We fell away and they, goldfinches at the thistles, blackcaps rattling out songs from buddlier tops, blue tits picking caterpillars from elder leaves, gulls chasing spiders across the graffiti-scrawled brick walls, moved in. There's a political aspect to the whole discussion, like, which is really about understanding what we want also as people, because everyone in principle agrees to a park, uh, but not everyone would agree to a kind of low maintenance with a look of a rundown place, which would actually be great for a lot of species, for a lot of other animals and plants. So I, I think there's the design project in the sense is really about designing and proposing other kinds of ways also of being and experiencing and of expanding the idea of nature, you know, like beyond the kind of manicured lawns, but also beyond the idea of beautiful wilderness that can exist in some faraway place. And Giovanni? With uh, my partner, Alessandra, we run a studio. We're based in Rotterdam, and the studio is called Studio Sidiano. Uh, we're both Italian architects living in the Netherlands. And we work a lot with uh, public space, uh, public art, and installations. So Amsterdam Allegri's is a project uh, which was done for the Pedeum, which is a competition that we won two years ago. The format of the competition asks for a daring and future-oriented a proposal for a real world site. For in this case, it was a part of Amsterdam called Sixhaven. What we proposed was to look at this little triangular heart of the city, it, for it to be a sort of embassy of the various natures of the city. So a public harbor, which was inhabited by 20 uh, floating islands, which would all be different kinds of public space. Uh, but they were really offering a lot of possibilities of use and of misuse and of encounter between different kinds of people. And they were really pushing for an idea of public space where we would not be users of public space, but we would rediscover ourselves as kind of explorers and gardeners and sailors. And so a lot of the ideas that were developed there uh, touched the ground later on in the form of a playground or of an installation 
uh, or of other kinds of spaces that we've been designing since. We're both kind of excited about places where there is a certain lack of control or where a certain wilderness uh, or a different definition idea of wilderness can emerge. I think that this kind of not doing, this kind of stepping back is actually a design project in itself. That it's uh, not something that can really happen by accident, especially if it does happen by accident, it's kind of wiped out uh, very quickly, right? So the project of designing the way to see these places and to rethink ourselves as visitors of these places, a sort of a place that you enter that is not completely your own, which you, you maybe still need to frame, you still need to frame both as a space, but also politically, also culturally. It's a complete design project because it has elements of communication and discussion and uh, teaching and research and of spatial design, of course. During the lockdown, we were quite lucky. Uh, we have a studio and it was just us in the building so we could walk to work. But it was always the same walk and it was always along this one canal in Rotterdam. And it uh, has hard edges. It doesn't have any project to increase uh, wildlife. But then what we see is there are maybe 10, 15 uh, Eurasian coot nests uh, that from March and April start to appear and sort of emerge from the water. And they're built in the most creative ways. Some built with trash, you know, with bits of plastic and some floating on styrofoam boards that they would find on the canals. Alessandra and I were so frustrated not being able to have in-person reviews with our students that we were almost looking at these birds as designers. So in the last few months, we developed a huge passion for coots, which we never gave a second thought about, you know, because there's just so many of them and they just seem the most banal of uh, water birds. I think a lot of what we do and what we're interested in in office has a bit to do with this idea that we are always designing for a certain relation with these spaces. And sometimes it's a timid one. It's one of just looking. Sometimes it's maybe a bit more tied to our kind of agricultural origins. And it is about cultivating spaces. At the moment, I think that thinking of ourselves as gardeners is more important and more fertile as a, as a position to be in rather than to think of ourselves as conquerors or saviors of nature. Being gardeners really puts us in the ground. It really gets our hands, you know, a bit of dirt under the finger and a bit of understanding of the, of the conflict and of the negotiation that we keep having with places. And the more we have it, the better it is. That's a bit my feeling. This boat's called Are We There Yet? <laughs> it's true that sometimes wild things can use a hand, nest box, peanut feeder, bird bath, but these kinds of interventions can come with strings attached. We have a lurking sense, I think, of ownership, of a part share in the birds' lives, an insistent idea that we're allowing the birds, provisionally, on condition of decent behaviour, into our sphere, accommodating them, ushering them graciously, fat ball, sir, Niger seed, madam, into our human worldview. Sure, they'll share our physical space, but they'll keep their own worldview, thanks. They'll continue to move around a shifting world without being bothered why it's shifting. They'll carry on playing the smart game, working the angles, keeping out an eye for the main chance, occupying, as always, their own sphere. It's useful to think about what if biodiversity and nature was at the forefront of planning considerations and, and that you just had to build around that and that was the challenge for the developer, the architect, the landscape architect, for all those people and then people would be creative and would be able to rise to that challenge and obviously we're speaking in a privileged way because we've got somewhere to live that, that is secure and we can want to prioritise nature and things that maybe are seen as a luxury because other people are focusing on, you know, not having good housing and needing somewhere to live and all those things. So we realise we're, we're privileged in being able to say that, but it would make housing, the quality of housing, so much better for people. And if you've got this in the city, you know, what if it was protected properly by councils and by, and by, by people who would make the decisions so that actually thinking longer term... It could be this place where everyone can flourish. So 
thinking about 2020 being the year that Regents Canal turns 200 and what my hopes and fears might be for the next 200 years, I, I think I'm going to go broad and not just focus on Regents Canal because my hope is really broad. And it's that our understanding of what constitutes infrastructure is broadened. Landscapes and waterways are always doing more than one thing, always, which makes it so much more baffling why it's not a no-brainer to fund them more. My biggest hope is that we will start recognizing the multifunctional nature of green and blue infrastructure and the value of investing the crazy money gray infrastructure gets because of the enormous returns to all of us. And my biggest fear is that we won't. The word design, you know, it's kind of associated with the word like plot, you know, which has kind of connotations of traps, trapping and, you know, having designs on something or kind of, you know, it's sort of wrapped up in this, like, like making tricky interventions and, and so on. Making tools, you know, is a kind of fundamental part of being a human and doing stuff with your hands and kind of making inventions in the world somehow, you know, the tendency is to intervene and kind of do something and change something. And I suppose, yeah, like decentering humans, um, it's deciding not to do that, um, not to kind of intervene, but, you know, deciding to do or not do is still a kind of this power sort of dynamic. And so if you were kind of commissioned to design some intervention and then you said, actually, I don't want to do it, I don't think it should be touched or whatever, you walk away from the project. But even if you walk away from the project, then, you know, there's that classic thing, well, somebody's going to do it or whatever. And so culturally and legally and politically, we kind of, you know, the, the impetus is to kind of intervene, I suppose. But I wonder if a true relinquishing of power is like, you know, you give up the power to intervene or not intervene somehow. Because to truly take humans out of the centre of things is to like also give up the power to put yourself back into the centre. And so that's why it's tricky and I like, I like the trickiness of it, this kind of necker cube, just like, you know, seeing something this way and then seeing it that way, seeing it this way, seeing it that way. The canal is part of a city that is on a floodplain. The rate of loss of glacier ice is so enormous that sea levels are going to be rising more rapidly. So I imagine in 200 years, or I hope, that London is not completely covered in water, you know, in which case the canal would be non-existent. The reason I dislike design being sidelined is that I think it is so valid for change making for changing how we perceive and use things. And in the context of breached planetary boundaries, the very purpose of art and design has really got to change. And I think it's got to change from being about accumulating commodities and showing off, you know, finessing aesthetics or just relaxing in your downtime. And it's got to be more about a rapid reinvention of how we live with things, with each other, in places, so that we can transition to a more local, biodiversity-first, circular economy. It also has a really spiritual role um, to reconnect us with the sacredness of the wild and our ancestors and to the fundamental fact that life provides life. Yeah, it, I mean, it would be, it's such a beautiful brief. I think to think of the 200 years is kind of both necessary as it is necessary to understand that in 10, 15, 20 years, there will be another dream, hopefully for the next 200 years, which will build upon that, right? But yet something will have started, some things will remain and some things will change. And because we're thinking that, because maybe we work the space and to us the idea of beautiful spaces is a very important one, but also because we think that the beauty of a space and of an object is not just in 
how we look at it and how we see it, but it's also beautiful space is also a beautiful society. It's a beautiful system of relation between people. It's a complete idea of beauty. Sustainability has been looked at mainly as a kind of something made of numbers, something which is just, you know, the CO2 that is absorbed, just the nitrogen that uh, spilled to the ground and only in these terms and so many human powerful things were a bit left aside. They were a lot harder to measure. I think it's a, quite important now to put those in the foreground again, to put our kind of relation and a certain emotional intelligence back in the, in the conversation. This year the canal is 200 years old and it's quite poignant to think about the question, what will it look like in the next 200 years? My hopes are that people will have a better sense of awareness of the canal's biodiversity and its history and how they come together in the form of sustainability. That is my hope. But my fear is that even as the towpaths will get so narrow, people will only be focused from getting from A to B, taking all of that history, that biodiversity, that lovely ecosystem for granted. I don't want that. I, I don't wish that for the people in the future. But what I, I do hope will happen is that People can first notice, then appreciate, and then protect their stretch of the canal. No matter if it's with a community group or an individual, but everyone needs to work together to achieve this overall goal. One of the most important things is collaboration. Working together, bringing together ideas and experiences, and delivering that successfully. That is what I hope to see in 200 years time, the art of collaboration. Local authorities, community groups, individuals. And we all need to work together to make sure the next 200 years is even better for the canal. This podcast was conceived by their project for London National Park City. It was curated by Justine Boussard and Sarah Turner with sound design from Deborah Ridley. We're grateful to London National Park City for letting us run with this idea and to London Design Festival and Canal and River Trust for their support. Thank you to all our speakers, Sabina Mohadeen, Bridget McKenzie, Gareth George, Thomas Thwaites and Giovanni Bellotti from Studio Ossidiana. Special thanks to Richard Smith for sharing excerpts from his book An Indifference of Birds. And of course to our guide Kabir Cole for sharing his expertise and enthusiasm. For more information about Regent's Canal, visit the Canal and River Trust website. For more information about National Park City, visit National Park City website. Stay connected for future audio journeys through other London habitats. If you enjoyed this episode, do like and subscribe.